Good morning. My name is Richard Cutting, and I'm very honored to have been asked to speak today to mark the 100th anniversary of the first service held in this sanctuary on May the 2nd, 1915. I've been a member of St. Stephen's for the last quarter of that century and have greatly valued being part of this community. I know many of you have even longer associations, but longer or shorter, I believe we all value our membership here. For me, one of the foremost pleasures is just to be present in this space, whether for morning worship or afternoon performances of memorable music or the peace of a nighttime evensong. And while I'm enjoying this space, I often wonder at the remarkable commitment of our predecessors who gave us the gift of this sanctuary by their faith and dedication to St. Stephen's. So it seems very appropriate that we celebrate this centennial today. This building is actually the fourth St. Stephen's Church structure on this site. So it seemed a good moment to recap some of the earlier history. As long ago as 1725, the Reverend Samuel Johnson established a mission in Ridgefield known as the First Society of Ridgefield Church of England. And in 1739, the proprietors of the town granted a very small plot of land for the erection of a church. The plot of land was roughly the size of this chancel down to about the steps, so it's pretty tiny. We have a copy of the original document recording this transfer as registered by Timothy Keeler for the town of Ridgefield. And you can see this and many other historic documents as part of a display which we have set up in North Hall at coffee time. So by 1740, the first church was built and in use for services. Unfortunately, the Revolutionary War intervened and in 1777, on the day of the Battle of Ridgefield, uh, the church was burnt by the Brits uh, because it was being used by the colonialists to uh, store things in it that they shouldn't have been there. And, uh, <clears throat> as you can imagine, the, that caused quite a hiatus in the uh, continuing of services and without, with a revolutionary war going on and without a church building. It wasn't until 1791 that the second church was built and services were resumed. And we're extremely fortunate to have the original document, uh, two original documents granting land by Benjamin Smith, which made this possible. And that increased the land that the church had to roughly the size of this sanctuary space. We have those marvelous documents which recorded that transfer and also pledges by parishioners to make that possible. They made money donations denominated in pounds, shillings, and pence, and promises of labor. Uh, the two leading donors were Benjamin Smith, who gave the land as well, and Nathan Dorchy. And there's a plaque on the south wall here of the church um, recording uh, the service of Nathan Dorchy as a zealous friend and supporter of the church. This service included not only his pledge, but also for money, but also his labor for, quotes, carting one load one day with Thomas Stebbins. The plaque on the north wall at the back of the church uh, records the service of Samuel Stebbins, 
who became senior warden just after that church was built in 1793 when he was just 27 and he was still senior warden at the time of his death in 1836, some 43 years later. Nowadays we have term limits on senior wardens. <laughs> the, the name Stebbins uh, is very well connected with this church uh, through many generations. Um, Samuel Stebbins had a granddaughter, Elizabeth Stebbins Waterbury Clark, and she was a member of the church for a long time, died in 1913 just before this church was built. Um, her three sons donated $1,000 for a pew in memory of her mother, uh, and that uh, registration of that pew is actually recorded uh, in the town hall as well as here in the church. There's a plaque in the second pew here where Mike's sitting, um, denoting it to um, uh, Waterbury Clark. There's also a memorial inscription to her at the foot of this pulpit. Uh, she, in her turn, had a grandson, Henry Austin Clark, Jr., and he had a granddaughter, of whom we were unaware until very recently, uh, who by some mysterious chain was holding some of these very historic documents, some of them over 200 years old, recording the pledges of the uh, original subscribers to the church. And uh, much to our delight, these were delivered to us by a professional archivist last summer, and they are on display over in North Hall at coffee time. So you can see the originals, and uh, you can look at uh, photocopies and transcriptions so you can read what they say. So the second church built in 1791 was in use for 50 years until 1841. So the efforts of those original supporters were well rewarded. By 1841, the church was able to support a full-time rector for the first time, and the facilities were becoming inadequate for the size of the congregation. The building was a, itself was about half the size of this sanctuary space. And uh, the comments were that the appointments in it were primitive and uncomfortable. Uh, they had no light or heat, for example, in that building. Uh, the Ridgefield historians, Albert Nevins, in his historical sketch of Ridgefield, made the following comment. Women and children were allowed to bring footstoves to the church to mitigate the cold during the hour-long sermon. So, uh, <laughs> uh, as the wind whistled through the cracks in the walls, but had any man used them, he would have been indelibly disgraced. So, in 1841, a third church was built, which addressed some of the shortcomings of the second church. And we benefited then from a substantial gift of land by Isaac Jones, which more than tripled the available land space. And uh, there's a plaque in the narthex which records that gift. The cornerstone for the third church was laid in August 1841. And happily, that's now preserved for us in the rear wall of the sanctuary there on the north side. <clears throat> the third church also displayed the plaques to uh, Samuel Stebbins and Nathan Dorchy, which I already mentioned. So they moved along with the buildings. The third church was, in its turn, in use for 73 years uh, into the 20th century. But from about the turn of the century onwards, the church was beginning to show the uh, afflictions of its age. Electric lighting had only just been installed for the first time, uh, but there's still no record of any heating in that church. 
The rector at the turn of the century um, was the Reverend John Chapman, and he was authorized by the vestry in March 1913 to consult an architect to evaluate whether to renovate the old church or build a new one. And in July, the vestry determined to proceed with detailed plans to build a new church and appointed a building committee to supervise the project. The parish annual meeting in April approved the vestry decision, and the last service in the old church was held on May the 25th, 1914. So the whole thing proceeded at an amazing pace. In just a couple of months, they'd made the commitment and uh, held the last service. The building committee made a decision to build the new church, this one, on the site of the old one, meaning that construction had to be preceded by demolition of the third church. And amongst the documents delivered to us recently, we have a photograph of the partially demolished third church um, taken at the end of May 1914, right after the last service. Again, you can see that in North Horn. The selected architect was a Mr. Rainsford who designed this building and also all the interior furnishings, the pews, the pulpit, the altar, uh, and the um, chancel furnishings. The committee, the building committee, originally had in mind to commission a Gothic-style church and found, to quote, that the old colonial traditions of civil and religious life proved to be strongly grounded in the hearts of the people, which I think is a discreet way of saying no to the Gothic uh, plans. <laughs> However, the committee was so pleased with Mr. Rainsford's colonial-style plans, they were accepted without a single dissenting vote. And the cornerstone of the new church was laid on June the 28th, 1914, so still progressing at an amazing pace. Of course, all this activity was accompanied by considerable discussion of how to raise the necessary funds. The church had gradually accumulated a building fund which held about half the estimated construction cost. And Dr. Chapman seems to have been particularly effective at obtaining donations from parishioners, and by September of that year, he'd increased the fund to about three quarters of the expected cost. To provide the remaining funds, the vestry approved the placing of a $10,000 mortgage with the South Norwalk Trust Company. So Dr. Chapman's vigorous participation in the whole undertaking was central. So it came as quite a shock to the parish when he announced in July 1914 that he intended to end his eight-year tenure as rector in order that a new rector could begin a new chapter in the life of the church in the new building. So the parish had to embark not only on building a new church but also on a new rector search and it's amazing that both major tasks were successfully completed on May the 2nd, 1915, which we commemorate today, when the very first service was held in this sanctuary, less than one year after the last service had been held in the third church. So this extraordinary accomplishment in such a short period of time. The May 2nd service in 1915 for the blessing of a church was led for the first time by the new rector Reverend William Lusk, who went on to be universally known as Daddy Lusk, and both he and the Reverend Chapman preached on that day. We have a unique photo collection uh, on display below me here of how the finished church looked 
1915, and very much as we know it today, although there have been a number of significant additions since then. The stained glass windows that we're all so familiar with were added almost immediately after the completion of the church, uh, given as a gift by Mrs. F.E. Lewis as a memorial to her parents, Clara and Samuel Russell. In 1927, it was determined that the church needed its first interior repainting, and a committee of five was formed to recommend the color scheme details. And I thought it was rather interesting to note that there were no men on that committee. <laughs> the blue ceiling that we now know so well was introduced at that time, and the gold detailing on the tablets with the uh, scriptures there were also introduced at the first time. You look at the early photos, you'll see they weren't there. <clears throat> Many years later, in 2004, we embarked on a restore and renew campaign to again refresh the entire sanctuary. We took out all these pews, refinished the wooden floors, we removed all the organ pipes, renewed leaky 40-year-old seals in the organ, and 150 families contributed to make this thorough restoration possible. And their names are recorded on a plaque in the narthex on the left-hand side. In 1957, at the suggestion of Reverend Aaron Mandebach, the baptistry, as we now know it, was created as a memorial to the Reverend Lusk, who had died in 1953. Reverend Lusk served as rector from the very first service in this sanctuary until his retirement at the age of 81, an extraordinary term of 35 years as rector of this church. Other major changes in this sanctuary were the installation of the current organ in 1962 by the Mola Organ Company and specified by our own Dr. Alec Whiten. The crypt was created in 1979 towards the end of Reverend Mandebach's 30-year rectorship. His recognition of the need for a suitable resting place for the cremated remains of parishioners was surely reinforced by the presence on a shelf in his study of several sets of ashes which lacked a better resting place. <laughs> I've mentioned the names of some of the leading figures in our history now departed, but I'd also like to highlight two more names happily still living. Reverend Aaron Mandebach was rector here from 1950 until 1980 and is surely the only current parishioner who was born before this sanctuary was built. And Joyce Nelson, our first woman senior warden who served for six years from 1985 to 1989 and remembered as the first name recorded on the senior warden's staff, which normally resides in the corner over here, but disappeared about three minutes ago when Sarah led all the children out. But uh, you can see the wand there when it's returned afterwards. <clears throat> There's a very rich history of St. Stephen's full of figures like that, and they deserve our remembrance. And it's inevitable, I can only acknowledge a few of them in our time this morning, so please forgive what might seem like other omissions. So here we are sitting in pews that have been used by parishioners for a hundred years, enjoying the beauty of this space that our predecessors created. I wonder what they would make of us 
and the uses we have found for this sanctuary. I like the wording of the first church records which permit the erection of a church or meeting house and it seems to me the rich variety in this, of activity in this space today is fulfilling that vision. Of course we have regular services where we come together to worship, we have wonderful celebrations to mark baptisms of new members, marriages of couples committing lives together and remembrances of lives lived richly by those we loved. We're also blessed to enjoy music in many forms in a space with outstanding acoustics, enjoying choral and organ works, and even occasional Ridgefield chirp concerts fleeing from inhospitable weather. During the summer Vacation Bible School week, you might be amazed to see what goes on in here with scores of young children running around this space in brightly colored t-shirts, balloons everywhere, music, dance, being noisily enjoyed by children and staff alike. I'm sure that sight would surely amaze the good parishioners of 1915. As St. Stephen's extends its reach to the community, I'm certain we'll continue to see this space used in new and unexpected ways. Just consider some of the changes we've already seen during the first 100 years. Perhaps most remarkably, our seats are now famously free. That wasn't always the case. The renting of pews was the major way the church raised funds for a couple of hundred years. And it was hard to imagine that when this church was built, that was still the case. Renting of pews was not done away with until 1919 following some rather challenging disputes between parishioners about who might sit where. <laughs> Another change absorbed by worshippers here was the transition of the Book of Common Prayer we use. First to the 1928 book, which was well accepted, and then to the 1979 version, which was not. Nowadays, of course, we look back at 1928 as antiquated, and we're beginning to see alternate prayers and liturgies being developed. And of course, 21st century technology is gradually infiltrating. Nowadays, you can go home after a Sunday service and enjoy an encore presentation of the sermon via the internet, none of which would have been remotely comprehensible to the good people who built this space. I'm sure we will soon see use being made of visual displays to greet or deliver messages or illustrate sermons because our younger generations are so accustomed to communication that's visual as well as oral. Does this idea of moving with the times make you shudder? If so, this might be a good moment to reflect on our part in the continuing history of St. Stephen's and the balance between the merits of tradition and the benefits of change. I happily confess I love this space and I'd be quite comfortable if it remained unchanged so you could reasonably label me a traditionalist. I love the presence of memorials around the church to remind us of the service of predecessors whose works we now benefit from. I love the comfortable familiarity of this space and the solidity which reassures me that changes will only occur slowly. It all seems to me to embody the wisdom of history which should not be quickly set aside. But I also know from my own experience, like it or not, changes are necessary and healthy. So we all have to be open 
to the evolution of new sanctuary experiences that support the ongoing mission of St. Stephen's. I recently read a very nice expression of this tension between tradition and change, <clears throat> summed up as, we should respect traditions, but not be ruled by them. Well, I wonder what the next hundred years does hold in store for this space. We just put on a new roof, good for that period, so we've done a bit already to secure the second centennial. This year, we're ensuring that our iconic steeple endures as a landmark of Ridgefield Main Street. Just 10 years from now, we'll be celebrating the 300th anniversary of the original formation of this church. And perhaps 100 years from now, parishioners of St. Stephen's will be gathering to celebrate 200 years of worship in this building. If that seems like a bit of a challenge, remember that in Europe, 200-year-old churches are commonplace. Many of you will be involved in caring for this sanctuary and continuing that balance between tradition and change. At some point, I will not be around to be part of those actions, but I will be keeping an eye on things from my space already reserved in the crypt, somewhere under the pews over there. <laughs> I hope you all will continue to love and enjoy this space as much as I do. Thank you.